Okay, so by a show of hands, like actually active participation, how many of you have ever played with Legos? Okay, hold on. Okay, that is actually every single, okay, Sean, there we go, every single person in this room. So like you have at least at some point taken a brick or two and snapped them together, okay? How many of you by show of hands have ever stepped on a Lego? Okay, that's painful, right? Those little buggers, right? Legos are everywhere, and quite literally, they are everywhere in my house. There's not a room in my house where you cannot find at least a tiny little Lego. All my kids love them. I love them. I still love getting down and building with them. They are, in fact, the number one toy company in the world. But did you know that back in 2004, they were on the brink of bankruptcy? Did you know that? Starting, they started, the company started back in 1949 in Denmark, and then as it was kind of shipped across uh, the world, it eventually made its way uh, to the United States. And in the 70s and the 80s, and even into the early 90s, the company just experienced growth each year. Some years, just exponential growth. They added staff, and they added product lines, and then something happened in the mid-90s. That steady growth that had been consistent grew stagnant. And then in 1998, they actually operated at a loss for the first time um, in the company's history. And by 2004, they were on the brink of bankruptcy. You see, they were struggling to create um, sets and products that the consumers wanted. And so one of the things they tried to do early on is like they, they got rid of all their current designers and they got 30 of the best, the top designers graduating from the top design schools all over uh, Europe. The problem was that these, these were really great designers, but they knew nothing about toy design and very li- little about um, Lego. And so the company just started throwing, you know, trying to do everything that they could. They started creating all kinds of sets. And their total Lego product line went from 6,000 individual pieces, and it doubled to about 12,000 individual pieces, which you can think about it becomes an infrastructural and logistical nightmare of creating all these new pieces and storing all these new pieces. And the problem was that no one was really buying it. And so they created all this extra product. No one's buying it. And so they continue to operate at a loss. And then in 2004, they hired a new CEO, and when he came in, he brought about a paradigm shift. Everything changed when he helped them see that we are not a brick company. We are going to be an entertainment company. So there was this paradigm shift, and they started partnering with beloved movies and characters like Star Wars and Marvel, and they created Lego sets that rode the wave of their momentum. They started making movies and TV shows and games and hosting competitions, and now there's even six different amusement parks across the United States. Another interesting thing that came with this paradigm shift is they started hiring people who were just excited about Legos, just regular guys like you and me who loved building Legos, and they started to turn over the creation department to them and go, what would you want to build Creativity and smart management started happening, and they were instrumental, but that was not what saved the company. What saved the company was this paradigm shift where they realized we are not simply or even merely a brick company. We are an entertainment company. And in just 10 years, in February of 2015, Lego replaced Ferrari as brand finance's world's most powerful brand. And they are the number one toy company in the world. So Mattel... Hasbro, Fisher-Price got nothing on Lego. Today's passage, we're going to see 
what happens when King Jesus brings a new paradigm. You see, Lego could not bounce back from trying the same thing over and over, just building, like putting out more Lego sets. What they had to do was shift the paradigm. And in the same way, Jesus steps onto the scene and says, look, guys, the old way doesn't work. What we need is not merely reform. We need a new paradigm. And we'll see that not only does the king's paradigm provide a framework for his ministry, but it actually provides the foundation for our relationship with God. Because you see, his paradigm is one of gospel, not religion. It's faith, not a formula. It's relationship over obligation. It's a duty, not a delight. And when you follow the king's paradigm, you'll find blessing, not a burden. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, and Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And we'll see two different conversations, one that involves fasting and one that involves Sabbath. And you'll see kind of wrapped up in fasting and Sabbath is everything that's related to the old paradigm and how they viewed it. And Jesus is going to step onto the scene and bring a new paradigm. And when he does that, we're going to see that he comes into conflict with uh, the old guard as well. So let's jump into the text. We'll start in Mark chapter 2, verse uh, 18. Look what the words say. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So in this first episode, as the scene opens up, we see people come to Jesus. And they're asking, hey, why don't your disciples fast like the Pharisees' disciples and even like John's disciples? And if you look back into the Old Testament, you'll see that there was really only one day that was legislated by law for them to actually hold a fast. And that was on the Day of Atonement. This was like the most holy day of the year when the sins of the people were, were brought before uh, the priest. And it was kind of like this corporate confession, this corporate cleansing uh, for the people. And so God required that there be a fast so that everybody's hearts were being prepared for that day. And as Old Testament history kind of moved forward, there were several other days of fasting and seasons that kind of came up throughout the religious calendar. But what happened is that Pharisees and, uh, had gone far beyond the Old Testament um, requirements, and they had adopted a more demanding code of fasting. In fact, they, they mandated that their disciples fast twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday, which is well beyond what the Old Testament law from God had required. They said, look, that's good, God, but we want to create a, a better way of doing things. We really want to be holy. We really want to make sure we get it right. And so not only did they fast twice a week, but they made their disciples do so as well. And we find that Jesus' disciples did not follow the same fasting schedule. And so when Jesus answers, he responds to them with a parable, which is pretty common uh, for Jesus. So let's look what that is in verse 19. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus says, hey, have you guys ever been to a wedding? Do people fast at a wedding? In fact, they don't, right? Jewish wedding, like you've never been to a wedding until you've been to a Jewish wedding, okay? Jewish weddings back then were joyous occasions with a feast that sometimes lasted an entire week. This isn't just like Saturday night. This was a week-long feast and celebration. You talk about Mazel Tov, right? I mean, these guys knew how to throw a party. Wedding times are time, weddings are times for feasting, not for fasting. 
In fact, feast, uh, fasting during a wedding would be unthinkable, right? Like you'd be this guy in the corner kind of mourning and sulking and, and not eating while everything else around you is all about celebration. What Jesus is saying is that he is the bridegroom and his disciples are the guests at the banquet. They're guests at the wedding. And so they're not supposed to be fasting. What I love about this parable is that admission to the wedding is not based on performance or pedigree, right? It's based on your relationship to who? The bride and the groom. Like, how do you get into a wedding? It's all because of your relationship with the bride and groom. It's not because you're a better partier than somebody. It's not because you've done these certain things. Your, your admission ticket is simply because you know the bride and groom. So it's a time of celebration and joy, not mourning and sorrow. And the wedding imagery should create in us this picture of a new beginning, right? That's what's happening in a wedding. There's this new relationship being formed. It's, it's a new beginning. And what's more is that the focus is on the bridegroom being with them. That's what Jesus said, right? As long as the bridegroom is with them, there's no reason to fast. Well, who's the bridegroom in this parable? It's Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the reason and your source of joy. If I am with you, there's no reason to fast. Let's look what he says in verse 21. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In case they missed the point of the first parable, Jesus goes on to give two more illustrations. He says, look, you can't take a piece of unshrunk cloth and use it to patch an old garment. Why not? Well, you know what happens with new unshrunk cloth. When it gets washed, it shrinks, right? But the old garment has already shrunk, and so this new piece is attached to it. It shrinks, and it pulls away from the old cloth, and it actually creates a worse tear than was there before. And, in just, and, and, and just to be clear with these guys, he gives them a second example. And he says, and you guys know that these, these will be just common, everyday, understood things. He says, nobody takes new wine and puts it into an old wineskin. Why not? Well, when you make wine, you first ferment it in a large vat, right? And so there's, there's, uh, there's yeast, and it starts to eat the sugars, okay? Any chemists in the room? What happens when the, the yeast eats the sugars? Well, two things happen. You get alcohol. And you get CO2, you get carbon dioxide. And what does carbon dioxide do? It, it expands, right? And so in ancient times, they would do that first round of fermentation in these vats. After the large barrel of fermentation happens, you put it in a bottle. You got to put it in this smaller thing and let the wine kind of sit for a bit so that it has time um, to age. Well, they didn't, have, they didn't have these bottles back then. They put them in these um, wineskins. And these wineskins were perfect because they were pliable. They were flexible. They could, they, could, they could handle the pressure of the expansion of um, the CO2. They have a natural elasticity and their strength to allow for the fermentation of um, the new wine. But you see, if you use the old wineskins that had been used over and over, they became brittle. They lost their elasticity and the bag would burst because it wasn't flexible anymore. And not only do you lose the wine, but you lose the wineskin as well. What Jesus is saying is things have to change. Jesus is bringing a new paradigm. 
He's bringing not merely reform or some minor changes. It's an entire paradigm shift. You see, the new fabric that Jesus brings cannot be interwoven with the old fabric and the tired fabric of religion. It will simply tear apart. The new wine that Jesus brings cannot be put into the old, brittle wineskins. It will burst. So your heavy traditions, your made-up rules, your religiosity, all of it has to go. So what should we call this old paradigm? Let's just call it for today's sake, religion, okay? So that when I say the word religion, I'm talking about the old paradigm. The old paradigm, religion, says this. It says, my connection, my relationship to God is based on my performance and on what I do. We've said it like this before in here. I obey, therefore God accepts me, right? I obey, and as a result, God will accept me. Well, under this paradigm, the law becomes a burden. The law becomes this duty, right? Now you have all of these obligations that you have to fulfill. And the constant grind and the constant pressure of feeling like you have to measure up, it actually becomes a form of slavery. You see, most people in the world believe that there's a God and that there's some reward in life for living a good life, right? That if you do the things that God has told you to do, that he will reward you. And, that, and if you don't, right, there's a punishment for bad living. And we believe that we relate and that we stand in good standing with God based on what we do. Now, even for people who don't believe that there's, that there's a God, they still believe that, that, there's, that there's this goodness, that there's this way of life that we should live. And so they either create that paradigm for themselves, they kind of make up their own rules, or they borrow some from the society that they live in. But everybody lives their life in such a way to kind of achieve this standard of living, right? Like the people that you live next to, your neighbors, even you in this room, believe that there's, that there's kind of a standard way to live our life. Now, there's hundreds of variations, um, but, but you can really, if you want to simplify or generalize all religion, it's, it kind of comes down to this paradigm that I obey and therefore God will accept me. God will give me rewards at the end of my life. There's a code of conduct. There's really like this formula. Do this and that. Do it well and obey. And then, based on your performance, God will accept you and give you the reward. Jesus is saying it's time for a paradigm shift. It's time for gospel. You see, under Jesus' paradigm, the gospel is not a burden. It's good news. The law will actually become a blessing, not a burden. If religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, the gospel is, I am fully accepted in Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. And that may sound like cute kind of semantics, but it really is, the difference between those two things is really life and death. What Christianity is saying is that God, through Jesus Christ, will give you complete and total salvation that you receive by sheer grace. It's not something you earn. It's not something that you achieve. It's not something based on your birthright. It's something that he gives you as a free gift. And when you're given that kind of grace, it does something to you where you want to gladly and gratefully live for him. I mean, imagine looking out into uh, maybe some of your, clo- your family members uh, or even like your significant other, your spouse, and saying, hey, I don't really love you for you. I love you for what you do for me. I mean, how romantic 
does that sound, right? Does anybody get excited about that, right? Like, what if your wedding vows were, look, I will, I will stay in this thing as long as you keep your end of the bargain. As long as you keep things fresh, as long as you keep things good, and I, and I still see the benefit and the relevance of this, then I'm here, and I, like, I'm all in. But the moment you start to pull away, the moment you don't do the things that I want you to do, then I'm, I'm taking these tiny steps in the opposite direction, Right? That's what a relationship based on performance looks like. And Jesus is saying, that will never do. You see, in religion, we're saved by, in this religious paradigm, we're saved by being better than everybody else, by racking up points so that you can cash them in at the end of life. But in Christianity, you're only saved if you admit, really, that you're absolutely no better than anybody else. Under the gospel paradigm, you realize that really aren't good people and bad people. There's not this us and them. We're all in the same place, that we all fall short. And you come to this place where you really believe that you, under the gospel, realize I am a spiritual and moral failure. And my only hope, my only shot is God's grace. In religion, the purpose of obeying the law is to assure that you're good with God. And so when you come to the law, Right? If everything's about following the details or, or, the, or the, uh, the formula, then what you really want to know is all the details, right? You go, man, if it's based on my performance, I need to know exactly what I have to do. I don't want to, I don't want to get to the end of my life and go, oh, if I had known that detail, I wouldn't have messed it up, right? You want to know the formula. And you'll also, if, you, if, you're, if you're living that way, will create all these extra boundaries just to ensure that you get it right, in the gospel paradigm, you look at the law of God and you're humbled by it. You look at the way that God has set out your life and you go, <laughs> there is absolutely no way I could fulfill all that. I know what's going on in here. I cannot love like that. You know you could never live up to it. But you also know that God accepts you because of Jesus, not because of what you've done. And so that frees you up to go, man, I know I can't live it out perfectly, but I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to try to resemble him. I'm going to try to love him with all that I have and love others as myself. And when I do it well, I'm not going to get puffed up because I know it's his grace that's enabling me to do it. And when I don't do it well, I'm not going to be dejected and despairing because I know he's the kind of savior that'll lift me up out of the mud. In religion, the details matter. The formulas matter. And honestly, it's really more about you and what you're doing than it is about God and loving others. You see, when you're following the gospel paradigm, you look at God's law and you go, what is the heart behind it? Not what is the, the tiniest detail. You're not looking at, you know, how can I not mess this up? You're going, man, how can I see the heart behind it so that I can image God best to, my, to, to others and to love him? So let's apply this to the fasting metaphor, that, or the, the, the discipline of fasting. You see, the people cannot understand why they're, the, Jesus' disciples are not fasting like the Pharisees. You see, Jesus isn't anti-fasting. He knows that it has a purpose. He knows that there are supposed to be these set-aside times in our life where we refrain from food in order to be restored. What happens as we live life? As we're going about our daily life, we get overfilled. We get kind of engorged on the things of this world. What fasting allows us to do is to refine and to recalibrate in order to be hungry again. 
You see, in our physical hunger, we become more alert and more aware of our spiritual hunger. And so in fasting, we refrain in order to be restored. You see, fasting was given as a gift to man in order to reset our soul, not as a way to earn favor with God. Do you see the difference between those two things? According to religion, fasting is just one part of the formula to earn points with God. And the gospel, fasting becomes a way for me to remove distractions and to remember what I really need is God. And so I empty myself of the things that don't satisfy my soul so that I can be filled again with God's love and his peace. Fasting is a gift, not a burden. It's not part of some formula for us to earn our way to God. The paradigm of religion must give way to the paradigm of the gospel. So let's keep moving in our text and see how this applies to the Sabbath. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. This would be the Pharisees who have followed him. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Okay, so what is the Sabbath? The word Sabbath just simply means rest. Right In Genesis, God creates in six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. Now, this is not because God gets tired. He's not worn out, okay? He rests in order to reflect and look back on his creation and to call it good. He looks back and goes, man, this is a good thing. And it became a pattern for us to have rest. And unlike God, our bodies actually need it, right? Like we get tired at the end of a day. Our souls get tired. Anybody have that moment where you feel like your soul is just tired? We were created for rest. Just like fasting, Sabbath is given as a gift for restoration and renewal. And then just like uh, in fasting, we refrain, right? we refrain from work in order to be restored. There are different types of refraining, but it has that same principle. Now, what you need to know is that the uh, Sabbath was a big deal in Jewish culture. It was one of the distinguishing marks as they're living in this environment with all these different cultures around them. They were the people that would work six days and then they would rest. Where other cultures around them was work, 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 work. There's always something to harvest. There's always something to till. There's always something to do. The people of God said, we're going to trust him and his provision and we're going to have a season of rest. Not only because we're physically tired, but we're spiritually tired as well. And then in the book of Exodus, God uh, codifies the law and he says, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy, which means set it apart, like guard it. It's really important. And he says, six days you'll labor, but on the seventh day, you'll do no work. You're going to rest. And in this time, everyone agreed that the Sabbath was to be observed. Where the debate really centered around is what constituted as work. Because again, look at God's law. It doesn't give a formula, does it? He doesn't say this is what work is and this is what work isn't. He leaves it open so that we'd have to wrestle with our hearts and go, is this really work or is this really not? Am I trusting in God's provision or am I trying to manipulate and control? This would require you to search your heart to understand the heart of God's law so that we could follow it. But over time, people don't like that. People don't like things being open. And so the Jewish culture and community created this document that outlined 39 things that constitute as work. Like one of them was moving something from here to there. That's like every day for me. I am always moving things around. 
It's like, how could you, I don't even know how you could live a, live a day without like having to move something from here to there. There was a restriction on how many steps you could take in a certain time. I mean, it was very, very regulated. It's almost like the only thing you can do is like wake up and like don't move. You know what I mean? That's how it would feel. In our text, Jesus and, uh, so what happens is, that's all the background. In our text, Jesus and his disciples head on over to the synagogue. And in the preceding verses, they've just had a run-in with um, the Pharisees um, because they're walking in and um, uh, they're going through the grain fields and they're picking a, a couple morsels to eat. And the, the, they, they kind of like pop out of the field and be like, ha, caught you. You're not following um, the Sabbath. And Jesus basically says like, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And they just kind of keep on going, right? The Pharisees don't like that. And so they follow them into um, the synagogue, and they're trying to find a way to accuse him. Now let's look at verse 3. And he said to the man, so remember there's a guy with a withered hand. He said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, now to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. So, so imagine the scene, right? Jesus has kind of left these Pharisees in his dust, He's gone into the synagogue, and he's looking around, and he sees a man with a withered hand. And kind of out of the corner of his eye, that crew who was just trying to accuse him and to trap him, they walk in as well, and they're giving him those haughty eyes. You know what I mean by that? Just those condescending, looking down on you kind of eyes. And so Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. And so he says to the, to the withered man, hey, come over here. And then it's like, it's like a way to, to, to prove his point. So he, he calls this man in, and then he poses this question with these guys. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To kill or to bring life? See, Jesus is tired of their games. He's tired of their religiosity, and so he confronts them. And what is their response to his question? What does it say? But they were silent. They've got nothing. Jesus has this way of like pinning you down where you're like, you just, you're like, you just don't know what to say, right? They can't answer because they know if they answer an agreement, which is like the obvious answer, like we should do good and give life, they know it'll undermine their whole investigation and they'll have to drop their case. But they know if they verbally disagree, then everybody in the, sanctuary, in the, in the synagogue is going to be like, what do you got against this guy with the withered hand? Like, if Jesus is going to help this man, who are you guys to stand in the way? So they remain silent. Look at verse 5. He looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Jesus gets angry at their incessant desire to nitpick and stand in his way to minister to others. And that might have been alarming to you to hear, like, Jesus got angry? Look what happens. Jesus has what is called righteous anger. You see, he gets angry for the right reasons. I get angry for the wrong reason. He gets angry for the right reasons. He responds in proper proportion without any injustice. See, where anger goes wrong with us is we often get wrong for the wrong reasons. It's disproportionate, and there's usually some form of injustice. That's why our anger is almost always wrong. But Jesus is, raw, is, is angry for the right reasons. He responds in proper proportion without any injustice. So here's Jesus's reasons for getting angry. Think about it. What is the Sabbath all about? What is that day of rest about? 
Well, it's about restoring what is depleted, right? It's filling back up what has been diminished. It's about replenishing the drained, repairing the broken. To restore the man's shriveled hand is to do exactly the thing that the Sabbath is all about. And not only is he angry, but he's got grief mixed in with his anger. His, his anger is mixed with grief because of their, what does the text say? Their hardness of heart. You see, the heart is where our desires are forged, right? It's in this, it's in this place where um, our desires and our will is forged, and out from it flows all of our behavior. And when our hearts are hardened, it cannot function properly. And when that's happening, all sorts of evil things kind of flow out of, um, of, of the heart. And what's happened is these Pharisees have focused on the stringent regulations for the Sabbath. And in so focusing on the minutest little details, they've missed the entire point of the Sabbath. And their self-righteousness has grown to the point where they'd, they'd be willing to let this man go without healing. Their hearts have become hardened and shriveled just like that man's hand. And so Jesus asks him to stretch out his hand. And no sooner has he stretched it out than it was restored. And we've seen some other healing passages where Jesus touches the man or does something. What I love about this is Jesus is showing him, I don't have to work to do this. All I have to do is say, stretch out your hand. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't even move. It's almost like he's going, I'll show you how to heal on the Sabbath. Now what happens? The Pharisees leave angry and disgruntled, and they, and they had tried to find something to discredit him. And when they couldn't, what do they do? They go out and find the Herodians. Now, you may not know who those people are. They were the people who were loyal to Herod the king, who was the Roman puppet king over Galilee. These would have been natural enemies for the Pharisees. These would have been the guys that, in their pontificating, would have, would have been arguing against them. But what happens? All this hatred, all this animosity towards Jesus, and they go and find their natural enemy, and basically they say, hey, you guys are trying to get rid of Jesus too? The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And they consort with their natural enemy to put Jesus to death. Do you see the irony from Jesus' question? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to kill or to bring life? And in their silence, they go out and they seek to kill Jesus. They seek to kill him. See, when you have your mind made up about a person or a situation, when your heart is hard, you're not open to new information or to see what is happening right in front of you. And the hardness of heart has led the Pharisees to plot to destroy him. Instead of praising God for seeing this miracle, for seeing this, this, this person who lived in their community have his hand restored, they seek to kill you know, people often say to me as I'm meeting people, maybe you've had this conversation um, in the workplace or in your family, like, if I, could just, if I could have seen Jesus, if I could have seen the miracles that he had performed, then it would be easy for me to believe. What do we see here? These people saw Jesus right up in front. They saw a literal miracle. But their problem was not their eyes, but their heart. Their heart was hardened. And so we see this principle, if your heart is hard, you will never believe. Do you see the difference between the old paradigm of religion versus gospel here? They've taken what was supposed to be a gift, what was supposed to be a blessing to them, this rhythm of rest where they can be restored and replenished, and it's become a burden. They tried to create a formula for their relationship with God, but you and I both know relationships don't work on 
formulas. The second you think you've got someone figured out, like the right buttons to push, what happens? The game changes. Husbands, amen, right? Like people are not these formulas that you can just push buttons and then you'll get an, a, a, a patterned response. We want formulas because they're easy to apply, don't we? They require no thinking at all. But life and relationship is far more beautiful and complicated for our formulas. These Pharisees were looking to their obedience and their performance to be what earned them God's favor. Remember, what did I say religion was? I obey, therefore I am accepted. And in doing so, they missed the glaring reality that nobody is able to perfectly follow the law. Even with their detailed formulas, even with all their extra legal restrictions, they're not able to do that. And so what happens when you live under the paradigm of religion, what happens? You live a frantic life. You're always wondering about where you stand, right? If you're doing it well. And so I work to prove myself. I have to work all the time so that I can feel valuable. And so much of my life is spent trying to convince myself and others. And ultimately, I'm trying to convince God that I'm good enough for him. Friends, that is exhausting. And not only that, it's futile because it's not enough. You can never earn your way to God. Our only hope is grace. Our only hope is that God actually loves us and has made provision for us. You see, after God created the earth, what did he do? He looked back and called it good. And he was able to rest. Why? Because the work was complete. He was satisfied with what he created. And he could look back on it and say, it is finished. Now we fast forward all the way to Jesus and he's on the cross. And what did he say at the very end? He said, it is finished. Now why could he say that? Because the work that he had come to do was accomplished. And the Bible says after he said it was finished, he was able to rest and to entrust his soul to God. So what does it mean that it is finished for Jesus? It means that Jesus completed the work. Throughout his life, he lived the life that we should have lived. And on the cross, he died the death that we should have died. And he paid the ultimate price to purchase God's forgiveness and grace. And because of that, we can be restored in our relationship to God. He refrained so that we could be restored. And when you believe and follow that paradigm, you can finally rest. Faith becomes your guide, not formulas. Relationship becomes your goal, not obligations. Following God becomes a blessing, not a burden. So practically speaking, as we kind of finish out, we need to ask, what paradigm are we following? Are we following the paradigm of grace and gospel, or are we following the paradigm of burden and religion? Where does your life look like old wineskins? Where is it brittle? Where, where have you lost the elasticity to allow God's new wine to pour in to you? Where are you falling back into the rut of trying to prove yourself? Maybe that's with uh, someone in your family. Maybe that's with your boss. Maybe that's with God himself. Where have you created formulas in your life for how to keep God's law so that you can be good enough? Instead of asking God for faith to live out in this dynamic relationship with him. And so maybe we do need to take a day this week and fast. Like remember, Jesus is an anti-fasting. Jesus says there's a day coming when you'll be with me and there's no reason to fast. It would, it would be unthinkable to fast in that day. But until then, fasting is a gift 
for us that we can use to refrain in order to be restored. It resets our appetite. Maybe you're struggling with overwork, and this idea of Sabbath is something that you really need to link into. I mean, we live in one of the most overwork, work-addicted, distracted cultures to ever live on the face of the planet. I mean, if you're like me, you wear your exhaustion and your work like a merit badge, right? What happen, you, you, you go and you see someone, what do you say? Man, huh, I'm exhausted. I'm crazy busy. And I'm not doubting that you are, but we almost say it like, like if I'm not that, then I'm not measuring up to some standard. What we're really saying, when we say that, when I say we do that, I'm, I'm really talking about me. Like this was very convicting. I had one of those crazy, busy weeks where I was trying to jam everything in to a window of time that it was never meant to hold. I struggle to rest. I don't like doing that. I'm just confessing to you as your pastor. I do not like resting. I like to go. In fact, a lot of times I feel like I'm a human doing and not a human being. I don't have this all figured out, and my guess is you don't either. We need rest. We need to trust in God's provision and seek the rest that uh, only he can offer so that we can be restored and replenished. And if you've never tasted that rest, and I'm talking about that deep kind of rest, that soul rest that comes knowing God loves you, if you've never experienced what it's like to be completely and accepted by and loved by God, my guess is you're tired and weary. My question to you is, what is stopping you from giving up that paradigm of religion? What is stopping you from holding on to God's paradigm of rest and gospel? And if that's you, I would love, it'd be my favorite thing to do today, to get to talk to you about what that looks like. The paradigm of religion is exhausting and will never satisfy And when you're doing well, you'll get inflated with pride. But you'll also have this lingering fear that if you don't continue to measure up, you'll lose your standing. And when you fail at keeping that burden and the obligations of religion, you'll feel rejected and dejected and in danger of God's judgment. What's offered to us is the paradigm of gospel and its freedom. In it, we have deep rest. It frees you to live a life of love and enjoyment with God and others. You'll know that you're truly known, truly loved, and truly accepted. You're beloved. You're his. Let's be a people marked by that kind of gospel. Let me pray.